Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 420. 420 is an apt name because that makes me think of marijuana and drugs and addiction, and we're talking about device addiction. Too many segues in that leak, maybe. Anyway, we got Brian Solis. He's got a wealth of research and insight into this stuff. So you'll learn, one, the biochemical forces that rewire your brain when exposed to social media. Two, the key thing you must do to reclaim your power of attention. And three, why devices are often thieves of our own happiness. If you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep420. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope you'll check out some of our cool stuff. Not that I'm trying to manipulate and control your attention in order to monetize it for as much as possible, like a nefarious force that Brian talks about. But I just think you'll find some helpful stuff, including uh, links to all the stuff we talked about, including a drop down under the podcast menu bar, which will give you links to the favorite episodes and every episode tagged by topic and confidence you covered and the capacity to full text search all 420 episodes. That's much of the reason why we do the transcription. So great stuff over at awesomeatyourjob.com in addition to these particular show notes. Now here's Brian's story. Brian Solis is principal analyst and futurist at Altimeter, a profit company, a keynote speaker, and a best-selling author. Brian studies disruptive technology and its impact on business and society. In his reports, articles, and books, he humanizes technology and its impact on business and society to help executives gain new perspectives and insights. Brian's research explores digital transformation, customer experience and culture 2.0, and the future of industries, trends, and behavior. Today, we are particularly talking about his book, LifeScale. And this conversation was kind of short because we had a limited time window and then we had some technical difficulties. So it's real short. But Brian was so kind as to send me his book in advance and allow me to share some excerpts. So you're going to get a full taste of what Brian had to share, even though our conversation itself was short. So big thanks to Brian for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Without further ado, here is Brian. Brian, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hey, Pete. It's honestly my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, yes. Well, me too. And I'm excited to dig into the wisdom of your book, Life Scale. But I understand that this is personal for you. Can you tell us the story of how distractions were impairing your life? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's my favorite subject uh, to, to kind of fall on the sword and be vulnerable to everybody. Uh, 
<laughs> but in all seriousness, it was not the book that I set out to write. Uh, I, in fact, I was trying to write another book on innovation and just couldn't really get past the proposal stage. Uh, and it was for the first time in my life, I was stuck and couldn't figure out why and had wondered if this is what writer's block had felt like or if I was just stretched too thin. But Long story short, after a whole bunch of research and time of uh, reflection and introspection, I'd gotten down to the bottom of the fact that I, was, I wasn't able to get into the flow like I used to because I had completely changed my life. It had been at that point when I started writing the proposal, it had been two years since the previous book had published. And before that, each subsequent book had been a little harder and harder to write. This time was the first time I couldn't get past the proposal stage. And I had just basically succumbed to all of the digital distractions that define my life. And in the time that I had written the last book, I had grown exponentially on platforms uh, I was using my phone more and more and more, and it had an incredible effect on depth and creativity and, and flow and productivity in ways that I just didn't realize until I had to go back and dive deep or try to. Oh, that's interesting. So you're kind of a victim of your own success. You had so many fans, followers, etc., that there's just more to respond to and more potential for beeps and buzzes and claims of your attention. Yeah, absolutely. And not only that, but with that pressure of, of maintaining a presence and also trying to stay relevant uh, and, and continue to build that audience, right? Because there's always somebody or something new to, to follow or at least be entertained by. The other side of it is the dark side of digital, which is what it does to your brain. So it rewires it. It makes it operate much faster. It makes it jump around from task to task to give you sort of the semblance of multitasking. But essentially all you're really doing is task hopping. It sort of drives you to float at a much more superficial level rather than allowing you the, the freedom and space to dive deeper and be content there. I could list out a million different things that it does to you, but it also affects you chemically. You mentioned that it rewires your brain, these digital devices and these interactions. Can you share with me perhaps one of the most frightening bits of research or, or studies that points to this phenomenon? Oh my goodness. Well, there's so many. Just going outside of the brain rewiring thing. For example, if you use social media quite a bit, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, one of the things that tends to happen is that when you post something or based on the designs of those apps, uh, they are designed to create microdoses of anxiety. So for example, if you open the app, there's going to be a millisecond delay before you see how many new notifications you have. And that's meant to sort of create this sense of anticipation so that when you see that number, you feel like you've won. And in that moment, what it's doing is unlocking a series of six different chemicals within your body. And also the same types of chemicals swoosh about you when you do get a new like or when you do get a new follower or when people are connecting with you. So essentially you're getting these microdoses of the semblances of joy or happiness or validation or uh, connection or desire. And your body learns to crave that. Uh, not unlike smoking or not unlike other types of drugs or alcohol that your body just starts to produce these chemicals in the absence of using those apps that sort of feed that addiction for you to come back. And that over time plays out in, in all kinds of things. So for example, I studied the effects of Instagram uh, and Snapchat on a woman's definition of beauty and also the effects on their self-esteem. I wish I could publish the results, but I will say this is that it's not good. And it mm. leads to all kinds of things and not just loneliness, but depression. Because if you think about it, there's this sense of them trying to always keep up with what the internet's standard of beauty is or whomever you follow and what 
what that standard is. And even then, it's not necessarily always a real standard. They might be using Facetune right. as a way of sort of making themselves look slimmer or more attractive or younger. And this is also creating new types of plastic surgery products that are catering to what, what's called dysmorphia or, or filter dysmorphia, or in some cases, Snapchat dysmorphia, because people want to look the way that they do in their, let's just say their selfie self, uh, you know, their aspirational self. Wow. You know, that that's so fascinating. And I guess I didn't realize that the platforms deliberately put in a little bit of a gap before you saw the notifications. I just thought that that was dumb. Like, don't you know, that's what I wanted to see first. How come I have to <laughs> wait for this <laughs> it's like no it's by design pete now i know yeah pete it's by design it's even worse they, they get it to, it's called persuasive design uh, it's it's actually taught at stanford university uh, and it goes further than that and some of the techniques that they use are also for example called variable intermittent rewards which are designed to emulate the types of things that go into for example digital slot machines or even analog slot machines and so it's really meant to kind of cater every time you use it you feel like you you are you and I've called this sort of resulting circumstance accidental narcissism because everything that you do in these platforms essentially tells you that you're the most important person in the world. And if you don't like what you see online, so for example, if you post something that really mattered to you, but you didn't get enough likes or reactions to it, chances are you're probably going to delete it because that's not your best foot forward, at least in the way that you think about it. Okay. Well, so there we go. There's some formidable biochemical forces at work when it comes to these uh, devices and social media accounts generating some addictive stuff. So, so tell us, what have you found are the most powerful practices to get liberated from this and, and reclaim your power to focus? This is a challenge that I face with with this book as well, is how do you sell a book to people who don't necessarily realize that they're distracted or suffering from any of this, right? Like uh, in total honesty, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't know I had a problem until I, I failed in a pretty significant life milestone. And I would hate for anybody else to kind of have to get to that point. Uh, I want everybody to optimistically or proactively come to this conclusion on their own. And I share this with you because, for example, Google and Apple are putting what they're calling digital wellness tools inside of your smartphones that sort of document how much time you spend on your phone every day or your tablet, where you're spending all of your time. And I've noticed in many cases uh, in my, my, it's called digital anthropology in, in my work, that People don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. They see it almost as a uh, as a badge. Somebody I, I talked to while I was at South by Southwest recently told me, oh my gosh, you know, these digital wellness tools are, are killing me. You know, uh, it told me yesterday that I spent over five hours, over five hours. Can you believe that? And not once in the conversation did they say, I need to change or that there's a problem or what's <laughs> oh, just like, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so to get to the answer of your question, there has to be a much more mindful approach to how we use technology. I'm not asking anybody to, to disregard it. I need it in my work and in my world. But we have to take a much more mindful approach to how we use it. In a sense, it's taken control of us and we have to take control of it. And even getting there, it's even in the smallest of things of starting to build the muscle memory and the expertise and the rigor to be able to just focus on one thing, whether it's monotasking or whether it's some type of, of exercise or whether you're practicing meditation, whatever it is, just focus on one thing for at least, studies show at least 25 minutes uh, to build that discipline so that you aren't getting pulled in a million different directions because if you are getting pulled 
in a million different directions all the time. You're never building the skill set necessary to be more creative. And creativity is what the world needs now in a time where everybody's using filters or augmented reality, where artificial intelligence and machine learning is starting to take and automate everybody's jobs. This is a time for creativity because creativity is a source of innovation. And that's what we're trying to get to. Okay. So you're saying it's just sort of like building a muscle. You got to go ahead and challenge yourself to focus on one thing, be it meditation or, or a given task for at least 25 minutes in order to, to get some gains, bro. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Then I'm also curious when it comes to taking breaks, like if you want to have more rejuvenation and restoration to have more creativity, I'm guessing you wouldn't recommend, hey, check out what's on Facebook as a refresher. What would you recommend instead? Oh, well, I'll tell you this. One of the stats that blew me away was every time you, you reach for your phone, and, and look, I, the first couple of times I tried using what was called the Pomodoro technique, which is a little uh, tomato kitchen timer, a little analog thing, but they make they make digital versions. The first time I tried to focus for 25 minutes, I was reaching for my phone without a notification. So that's that was the muscle memory I was working against. And stats show that when you allow yourself to break free in, in a moment like that, it takes about 23 minutes or so to get back to work. Your body has to just sort of shift its gears uh, because what's happening is when you're shifting tasks, you're actually, there are nutrients in your brain that you're using up and you're having to sort of refocus it into a certain area of where you were before. And that takes time. And that also depletes those nutrients over, over time. Uh, so they say you're freshest in the day. But ultimately, one of the things that I learned here, and, and I hope this answers your question, Pete, is you have to want to get your task done and not only get it done, but to get it done in the uniqueness of you uh, so that it stands out in a world where everybody is really starting to look the same. As amazing as everybody's life looks online, it's pretty much all the same. So you have to express yourself in the truest sense of you. Uh, and you can't do that if you don't know who you are outside of what you're trying to project. And also if you don't know what you're capable of. I dig it. Well, Brian, tell me anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we hear a couple of your favorite things. Yeah. One of the things that I found was that we tend to procrastinate more because it's really so hard to shift and, and focus. And so it's actually easier to give yourself to distractions and notifications. And also because we're chemically drawn to it. And in a sense, we're addicted without understanding that we're addicted. And, and we were sort of subjected to those designs that got us there. So it wasn't really our choice to get there. But what happens is over time that procrastination becomes sort of the subconscious attempt to avoid those unpleasant emotions or those unfamiliar disciplines that we sort of lost or gave up as in exchange for our devices. Uh, and there was this quote that I had stumbled on from uh, Muhammad Ali that said he hated every minute of training, but he told himself not to quit. The suffering that he was going through now, he was going to be able to live the rest of his life as a champion. And that, that got me to think about whether it's my work or your work or whatever it is that we're trying to do, individuality really is a competitive advantage. Uh, and also creativity is honestly a, a scientifically proven key to happiness. And so if you can't visualize what it is that you want to achieve and why, then you can't appreciate it and you can't learn and you can't build upon it to celebrate it. And essentially that means that the devices and our, our relationship to them become sort of thieves of our own happiness. And that's, that's what I want to leave everybody with is that really what we're talking about is not just 
taking control of technology, but actually living a happier, more creative life that we get to say what we use technology for and how and why and what we get to express that's uniquely us. And then and only then can we live our truly best life. Well said. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? <laughs> yeah, it was, I think there was that, it was that Muhammad Ali quote, but I, I think I have uh, another one too. And it was this quote from one of the designers who shall be unnamed, who was basically whistleblowing on the whole industry about the techniques they use to define some of our um, favorite apps. And it was that we were given the power of the gods without their wisdom. That is nice. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? So I started with this Pomodoro technique to build that discipline down to 25 minutes, but I also found the equivalent in vinyl, listening to vinyl again. And one side of a record is, is roughly about 25 minutes. And the process of focusing for 25 minutes is, is fantastic, but also the, the physical routines that you go through to pull that vinyl out of its sleeve and kind of enjoy the the senses of the smell and the feel and putting that needle slowly down on on the disc and hearing the crackling a bit it's it's also very cathartic and, and therapeutic so you build this muscle set but you also calm your mind into this way of being able to jump into a much deeper way of work much faster oh that's cool you know i haven't heard that as a tool before vinyl awesome and how about a favorite habit? A new favorite habit that was an old favorite habit has been the arts. Uh, so I grew up playing guitar and sort of shelved it in, in favor of <laughs> chasing a paycheck. And what I had slowly lost in my life was that sense of artistry that really unlocks parts of your brain that you can't really get to without it. And so I've started playing around with all kinds of different things. Like uh, I'm not even an illustrator or an artist in any way, shape or form, but I try to pretend like I am one. So I'll draw Sometimes I'll throw the pen in my left hand and try to write sentences and just kind of activate much more artistic behaviors to keep that brain firing in you in unique ways. Brian, this has been such a treat. I wish you much luck with the book and your speaking and your work and all the fun you're up to. Well, Pete, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm on a mission. You know, like you said at the beginning, this is my eighth book, but my first personal book. And I'm hoping to just bring anyone who is willing along on the journey with me. Well, that was a short conversation, but I want to make sure you don't feel shortchanged with an episode that's too short. So I'm going to share with you some of my favorite excerpts from Brian's book, Life Scale, and here we go. The attention economy has been wildly lucrative. No wonder. Our attention is finite, which creates limited supply and great demand. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings once said the company's number one competitor was sleep, quote, and we're winning, he proudly exclaimed to shareholders. Yikes. The attention economy is no mere metaphor. Our attention is traded as a commodity, and the more of it we spend on any given platform or device, the more those hosts can sell it for. Now, I don't like to think of your attention that way, dear listener. I'm hoping to give you such excellent value as opposed to just hook you in and, and listening forever. But keep me honest if, if you think I've, I'm sort of doing anything that's inappropriate. So I found that rather intriguing because you know how much I love sleep and I found it disconcerting to see someone go against sleep directly as referring to it as a competitor. So if, if you find yourself in those shoes, I hope that you are going to be proactive in doing what you can do to let sleep do some winning because that will do way more for being awesome at your job than watching Netflix late into the night. 
almost every time, depending on what you're watching on Netflix. There, there may be some rare counterexamples. So anyway, I thought that was a good one. Here's another one. Uh, Give some more details on the slot machine piece. He says, did you know slot machines make more money in the United States than baseball, movies, and theme parks combined? According to NYU professor Natasha Dow Shull, author of Addiction by Design, slot machines are designed to addict. In her research, she found that people get problematically involved with slot machines three to four times faster than other forms of gambling. Slot machines are so addictive because they employ another psychological technique for enrapturing us called intermittent variable rewards. So when you pull a lever, you hope to win a prize or reward, but this is an intermittent action linked to a variable reward. The variable here is that you may win, or most likely you may not win, but that designer's goal is to keep you playing the machine in the hopes that you're going to win. Former Google engineer Tristan Harris explains, you pull a lever and immediately receive either an enticing reward a match, a prize, or nothing. Addictiveness is maximized when the rate of reward is most variable. I find that intriguing and also potentially a reason why folks check their emails so often is because those rewards really are quite variable. What you see in there could be nothing. It could be a really huge opportunity that's exciting. It could be a funny joke. It could be a friend that you haven't heard from in a long time. It is super variable in terms of what you, you may see, and thus that brings about further addiction. But... Because of the costs associated with task switching, which eat up nutrients in the brain and results in tasks taking 25% longer on average than if you were uninterrupted. Another fun fact from the book. I also want to get into another claim that I found really helpful because I've dug into this with some guests before and I haven't been satisfied with their answers. And Brian, he goes there directly. He did the research for me. So thank you, Brian. Here we go. Did you know that you have the attention span of a goldfish? Actually, a goldfish holds a one-second advantage over you, according to a research report. Apparently, you and I can only concentrate for eight whole consecutive seconds, whereas a goldfish can focus for a whopping nine seconds. And what's especially frightening is how rapidly our attention span has been eroding. When it was measured in 2008, it was 12 seconds. So we've lost four seconds in five years. What would we be down to in another five? Do not believe this. When I dug into the basis of this claim, I discovered that the so-called study that generated this meme is a prime example of what I call short attention span theater. Details about the research process were scarce at best. Here's what we do know. The report was sponsored by the Advertising Office of Microsoft Canada. The authors are not named, and the source of the eight-second figure is a website called Statistic Brain, which offers zero sources of its own about the information it provides. Dig deeper, and not only does something smell fishy, <laughs> zing, the whole thing is bait. I couldn't actually find any real research that pinpoints the exact attention span of goldfish. We haven't lost our ability to focus at all. We just need to reclaim it. We can unlearn disruptive behaviors, learn new skills, and build new routines that help us chart the new course of life scaling. Think about it. When you binge watch your favorite show, are you only able to watch it in eight second bursts? How absurd. Similarly, I'll bet a goldfish could focus on eating for longer than nine seconds if it had to. Thank you, Brian. I have wondered about that. It didn't feel right to me, and I'm glad it has been debunked. If another cast brings that up, I will challenge them on that or just quietly edit it out because we will not have that inaccuracy being promulgated any further. All right. Last tidbit I thought was pretty cool. Prioritizing your day with the most important projects at the beginning gives you a fresh start with a reset brain that has released its mental exhaust. Research shows that our brains are much sharper in the morning. In fact, I learned that our brains are actually bigger, literally, in the morning. 
the Montreal Neurological Institute analyzed almost 10,000 MRI scans and found that the brain shrinks over the course of the day only to return to its full size the next morning. The team compared the brain to a sponge, which begins fully hydrated in the morning due to the redistribution of fluids during sleep. Our body replenishes our creative juices to begin each day with our full potential. I have experienced that intuitively and have heard that from numerous folks. And I thought that was a nice little tidbit of research to show that there's actually some biological stuff at work, the brain shrinking. And so I would encourage you that as you're doing your morning work, try to make it some of the most demanding, challenging, high value work. In most cases, that is not answering email, although that's often the first thing that is done in the morning. But sometimes answering email is the most critically necessary and cognitively demanding work if you're delegating to your team and pumping out a bunch of big decisions or you're coordinating with some other folks who are really making some key things happening and you got to think hard. Well, by all means, do that email first thing. But if you're just kind of going to get in the groove, you may well be wasting, frittering away some of your, your best big brain time in the morning. So any Anyway, these are all generalities. Of course, your mileage may vary and could have a, a different particular setup in your context. But I thought we got some good stuff from Brian in his book, Life Scale, and that'll do it. A shorter episode, but I hope you'll push subscribe so you'll catch us for our next guest. It's a bit more full-bodied. It's Kevin Cruz. He is talking about contrarian leadership principles that can transform your team. Hope you catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.